as we come to these last four chapters of Paul's, not just this letter, but all of Paul's communication with the Corinthians, uh, we'll find that Paul speaks quite strongly. We may feel too strongly. In fact, even he himself acknowledges that he speaks quite strongly. But we need to be hearing these strong words in the context of where we came to in the middle of the letter. If you remember, there was this tension between Paul and the Corinthian church and it was resolved as Titus brought a report that not only had they repented, but they'd expressed their love for him. So he was able to say, I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. So while he speaks strongly, he does it with a fatherly tone, uh, reinforcing his love for them. Well, our passage began with a military metaphor. Specifically, uh, the strategy that would be used to capture a city, to become the new ruler of those who lived in the city and those who lived around it. In biblical times, nations were defined by the fortified city, the walled city at their centre. In that city was where the king lived and where he ruled. So if you wanted to conquer a people, you'd have to conquer the city and with it, the king. We see a number of examples of this through the, particularly the Old Testament. One example is when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem from 2 Kings 25. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, though the Chaldeans were round the city. And they went in the direction of the Arava, that's the Dead Sea. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him on the, in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up, to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. So if you wanted to conquer a city, there are three important things that you would have to do. First, you would need to breach the city wall and all of the fences that was set up to guard against enemy attack. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's approach in this was very clever. Rather than waste energy and resources in trying to climb the walls or break down the walls, uh, he camped, where is it? He camped his army, lost my place. There, that's it. He camped his army right around the city, preventing anyone from entering or leaving, 
preventing any food or water to come in or out. Then they sat and waited it out for a year and a half until the city ran out of food. So then they didn't need to breach the walls because they were breached from within by the king and his army who were trying to escape. Secondly, you need to take the king captive, which is what they did on the plains of Jericho. And then thirdly, you need to punish the captured king to make it clear that now you're in charge and that king's reign has come to an end. So Nebuchadnezzar made sure that the last thing Zedekiah saw before having his eyes put out was his own sons being slaughtered, which meant your dynasty, your family is finished. Well, this is waging war according to the world, or as Paul puts it, according to the flesh. Christian life and ministry is a war, but it's not a war according to the flesh. It's not a war against flesh and blood. Ephesians uh, tells us, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So our war is a spiritual one against Satan and all his powers. It's a war not for cities or territories. It's a war for the hearts and minds of God's people. See how those strategic Elements of the siege were there in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6, destroying strongholds, taking captives and punishing disobedience. But the war isn't against people, it's against ideas. The strongholds are the arguments and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. That's the wall around the city. The prisoners taken captive and made obedient to Christ are thoughts. And it is every disobedience that's punished, not people. So if it's arguments, if it's opinions, thoughts and disobedience that we war against, then the weapons of our warfare can only be the word of God. God's arguments, opinions, thoughts, which we have in the Gospel of Christ and Him crucified. Notice how in the armour, every item is defensive, designed for protection, except for the one offensive weapon, which is 
the sword of the spirit, the word of God. This is real spiritual warfare. When you hear that term, spiritual warfare, don't think necessarily dramatic exorcisms, deliverance ministries, praying against Satan or territorial spirits or all those other things that might intrigue us or maybe keep us awake at night out of fear. Satan can cause some physical and spiritual suffering, but his primary strategy, as we saw back in chapter 4, is this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So just as Nebuchadnezzar put out the eyes of Zedekiah, so he'd know that his, he and his family had no future, Satan's principal strategy is to blind people's minds to comprehending and believing the truth of the gospel displayed in Christ and robbing them of true hope, making them think there is no future for them. Satan has a secondary strategy, of course, and it's towards us as believers. He knows he can't conquer us because we are secure in the victory of Christ, so he aims to discourage us, to make us ineffective for the kingdom of God by robbing us of our assurance and with it the joy of our salvation. Anxious, joyless Christians who have taken their eyes off the victory of Jesus' resurrection are exactly what he wants because he knows that kind of Christian isn't never going to give themselves in self-sacrifice for the cause of the gospel or to lay down their lives to love and to serve one another. Where there's no joy, where there's only anxiety, we turn in on ourselves, we focus on our own needs and desires instead of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus and living for his glory and not our own. So that's the primary war each one of us has to fight. Will we listen to the word of God in the gospel of Christ and have that shape and transform us? Or will we listen to all the other words that come from all directions, underneath which is always the subtle, deceptive word of Satan that says it's better to live for yourself than for Christ? So that personal battle for us as Christians is real. But there's also this larger battle going on, which is really the focus of this passage. When Paul says, uh, we, here, he's not so much meaning uh, we Christians altogether. He's meaning we apostles. Those who are engaged in actively taking the gospel out to the ends of the earth. The main battlefront with Satan is where the gospel is being proclaimed and the church is being established. Remember Satan's primary line of attack, preventing people from seeing the light of the gospel so that they may be brought out of his domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son where there's redemption and forgiveness. 
So these three strategies are applied to the work of the gospel. The strongholds are destroyed as the knowledge of God is brought to bear against all of the arguments and all the lofty opinions of the world, all the empty religions and empty philosophies and self-help programs that offer solutions to the problems and dilemmas of this world. Our fears are undone when the gospel of Christ not only displays to us the full revelation of God, the knowledge of God, but also has the power to save all of those who believe. So we could label this action evangelism. Then comes what we might label discipleship. The ongoing process of having my mind renewed and transformed as I hear and read and study God's word in the context of Christian fellowship and community seeking to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. A mature Christian is someone whose mind is so shaped by the grace of God in the gospel that there's nothing in our lives that we see as not being under the lordship of Christ. Remember we were told back in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even our eating and drinking comes under Christ's lordship. He's lord not just over the things that we might label spiritual, but also the things that we wrongly label secular. So knowing the the risen Jesus as lord should shape how I think about going to church and how I think about going to the supermarket. What I read in the Bible and what I read in the newspaper. What I say to God when I'm praying and what I'm saying to the neighbour over the fence. How I obey God's commands and how I follow the rules of my workplace or community and so on into every corner of my life. This also applies in a church context. For example, we're currently talking and praying about how we practice music and singing here at Bethel. We just had a meeting on Thursday night and discussed it at length. And as we move forward in this matter, as we strive to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Will we do so in a way that is shaped by Christ and by biblical categories or will we slip into using worldly categories and motivations? Taking every thought captive to Christ enables us to then fulfil the command let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. And then finally, the third part of that laying siege to a city is what we might label apologetics or discernment. Now, apologetics isn't saying sorry for being a Christian. In fact, it's the opposite, really. It comes from a word that means to give a defence. It's responding to the 
false ideas, the false gospels that come both from within and from without the church. And that was the big issue that the Corinthians were facing, these so-called super-apostles. They were bringing another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. So the language that Paul uses of punishing every disobedience, it's used here in the context of uh, referring to the action of church discipline. Refusing to allow false gospels and harmful ideas to be propagated in the church, even if it means removing some people from fellowship. Let us pray that uh, we'll never have to do that here uh, in our church. A mark of maturity for Christians is that we stand firm on the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So we're not tossed to and fro by the wind and by every, every wave of new and novel teachings. This was Paul's desire for the Corinthians, that they be mature, that they be discerning. So who were these super apostles? We don't really know because none of them are named. And Paul doesn't make it that easy for us because he doesn't give a nice neat summary or list of uh, why he saw fit to use this strong language to call them false apostles, deceitful workmen, servants of Satan himself. But we can be fairly confident that the things that Paul has confronted in these letters were the problems being caused by these people. And they are the same things that we need to be on our guard against today. So firstly we see that these super apostles, uh, they denied a central doctrine of the faith. In their case it was the resurrection of the dead and with it the resurrection of Jesus. That took up the longest chapter in 1 Corinthians. It's a matter that Paul spent the most number of words on because it laid the foundation for all of the other issues. So theology and doctrine matter because wrong doctrine will always lead to wrong practice and wrong practice will always lead to disunity and destruction. Secondly, because they denied the resurrection, they had to use worldly wisdom and eloquent speech to get people to follow them and their novel teachings. Now the gospel in itself has power to capture people's hearts and minds but if you gut the gospel of its power by denying central truths like the risen Jesus then you need to use persuasion and manipulation to get people to follow you, to believe you and you'll preach a message that scratches itching ears that promises hope in this life instead of the the foolish and the weak message, as Paul describes it, of Christ and him crucified. But that's a message that gives hope not just for this life but for the next. Thirdly, they claim to be super spiritual. 
They would recount their dreams and their visions and their revelations and their spiritual experiences. And they then exercised power over people by claiming the ability to impart this power to others. They became more like priests, people on whom people depended in order to connect with God instead of shepherds gently leading the flock. Of course, if anyone didn't have the same spiritual power and experiences as them, that just meant that those people were immature and unspiritual and inferior to these super apostles. And then fourthly, this manipulation, this spiritual manipulation led to spiritual abuse. They could demand things of their followers like places of privilege and honour in the church or payment for their ministry or the right to boldly commit immorality and somehow have it overlooked. Nothing came with a price, uh, without a price I should say. Although submitting yourself and everything you had to these self-proclaimed apostles and prophets probably would have been presented as a way to cause blessing to come back to you. Just give us everything and God will bless you. Now you only need to open YouTube or turn on your TV in the early hours of the morning to encounter people or ministries that bear one or more of those hallmarks. If a church bears all of those marks, it's probably a cult. There's nothing new under the sun. The same things that the Corinthians had to be discerning about, uh, we do too today. But the ministry of Paul and the true apostles was quite different. Firstly, they didn't depend on outward appearances or worldly standards of making assessment. Remember what Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers, did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul wasn't a great speaker by the standards of the professional Greek orators of the time. And we know from other reports outside of the Bible that he wasn't what we'd call physically attractive or impressive. He would have made a terrible televangelist. But what did mark him and the other apostles out as men that should be listened to was faithfulness and consistency. What they said, they also did. Showmanship is empty and fleeting. What endures is faithfulness to the gospel and to the call of Jesus to feed his sheep. Secondly, they were confident or content with the scope of ministry that Jesus had given them. Uh, The wording of this section feels a little clumsy to us in English, but what he's saying is that 
he has permission to boast about the work that God has done through him, but it's not to take any credit for, for himself, it's to glorify God for what he's seen firsthand in the transformation of people's lives from despair to hope. This is a sentiment that he expresses in uh, other letters. For example, in uh, 1 Thessalonians. What is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory, glory and our joy. So Paul was allowed to boast in the Corinthians and in the fruit of his ministry among them, but he didn't make his ministry look bigger or more far-reaching than it actually was. He had a desire to go further out with the gospel to places where the gospel hadn't yet gone. He was planning to go to Rome and then ultimately to Spain, but he wasn't interested in taking over someone else's ministry or to take credit for churches that he wasn't involved in starting. I once visited a church that had recently changed its name by adding the word international, Bethel Christian Church International, because their pastor had on one occasion spoken at an overseas event. So they were now claiming to be a church with global influence, while at the same time in their own backyard there were still people who needed to hear the gospel. So we don't need to promote our ministry or our church with a big and ambitious vision thinking that we are going to change the world. We need to simply be obedient to Jesus' call to proclaim the gospel, taking whatever opportunities he presents before us. Now that may be in other nations. It may also just be in our little corner here of Adelaide. Thirdly, they weren't interested in building structures or programs or institutions, but in the the growth and the maturity of people. Paul's feelings to them were like a father who wants his daughter to be married to the best husband. In that culture, it was done by the father actually selecting the husband for his daughter and his a wife for his sons. But this isn't just a metaphor that he's using here. This, this is the grand story of history. The Father created the world and made humanity in order to provide a bride for his son. When humanity, represented by Eve, listened to Satan instead of the Father... We rejected his choice of husband for us, thinking that we were wise enough to choose our own. We thought that our choice of husband would give us freedom, but instead he enslaved us to sin and to the fear of death. But then, the son, our true betrothed, he came and he rescued us from our captivity. And he's now at work in the church, as we heard at the beginning of the service, to prepare us to be presented to himself pure and spotless, without stain or wrinkle once again. So if as a church 
we wander from the gospel, if we take on another Jesus or another spirit or another gospel, we're like Eve in the garden, forgetting the abundance of the Father's provision and settling instead for a little morsel of fruit that promises freedom but only gives death. Fourthly, they didn't require payment for their ministry. Now I've mentioned before an ancient document called the Didache. Uh, This document gives us some insight into how the first century churches operated, uh, possibly written not long after uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians. Here's some of the things that it says about travelling apostles and prophets who ask for money. When an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread till he reach his night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. But whosoever shall say in a spirit, give me money or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he tell you to give on behalf of others in want, let none judge him. Every true prophet who wishes to settle among you is worthy of his food. Likewise, a true teacher is himself worthy, like the workman of his food. It's the nature of sinful human beings that whenever something good happens in the world, it'll attract the opportunists. You'll see it as a means for personal gain and exploitation. Whenever our government provides subsidies for anything from unemployment benefits to home solar programs to the NBN, they have to implement very strict guidelines to protect people from being exploited. I'm sure we've all received the the call or the text or the email from people claiming to be a parcel delivery service or an insurer or a tax official. Well, the super apostles were the first century equivalent of these opportunists. They were literally seeking to cash in on this explosive growing movement of Christianity. But they were more concerned with their own influence, their own glory, than they were in the glory of Christ and in the welfare of his people. The theme of boasting is the big issue, actually, that's unpacked in these last chapters of 2 Corinthians. And we'll hear more about it in the coming weeks. Boasting is, in a sense, is the key determining factor between judging between the true apostles and the super apostles. As we saw in verses 17 to 18, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So a true preacher of Christ is called to boast in Christ and the work he's doing among his people, not in themselves. So when listening to a preacher, whether it's in church or online or wherever else, be very wary if the speaker spends a lot of time talking about themselves and what they've accomplished in their life and their ministry and less time talking about Jesus and expounding his word. Ask yourself, who are they commending, themselves or Jesus? Is your conclusion at the end of the message, wow, they're a great preacher, or Jesus is a great saviour? 
Will you be inspired to sow a seed into their ministry with your checkbook or your credit card or will you be called to give yourself to Jesus to serve him as your Lord? Now having said that, I've got to say something briefly about myself. These aren't easy passages of the Bible to preach on because by saying all these things, I'm giving you permission to assess me by these standards. And Sukong will say the same. You must hold me accountable to these things, not just for the sake of the health of our church, but for my own spiritual welfare. If you see me starting to fall into any of these traps that the super apostles did, you have a responsibility to call me out on it. And if I don't listen to you, to discipline me. It's the job not just of the elders and the leaders, but all of the members of the body of Christ to ensure that in all things the crucified, risen, ascended and reigning Jesus is front and centre in all that we do. We must all be involved in that spiritual warfare of taking every thought captive, making it obedient to Christ, putting aside our own agendas and our own wants, our own wishes, and doing all things for his glory and for the fame of his name.